This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson. The Cosmic Computer by H. Beam Piper. Chapter 11 The shooting died down to occasional rattles of small arms usually followed by yells for quarter. An explosion thundered from across the crater. The Lester Dawes fired her big guns a few times. A machine-gun stuttered. A pistol banged far away. It took two hours before all the pirates had been hunted out of hiding and captured, or killed if found by their former captives, who were accepting no surrender whatever. Blackie Perales had been one of the latter, he had been found, his clothes in rags and covered with dirt and grease, hiding under a machine in one of the shops back of the dock, in which the Harriet Barn was being rebuilt. He tried to claim that he was one of the pirates' prisoners who had eluded the round-up at the beginning of the battle and had been hiding there since. As soon as the real prisoner saw and recognized him, they had fallen upon him and clubbed, kicked, and stamped him out of any resemblance to humanity. At that, what he got was probably only a fraction of what he deserved. The egg breakage had been heavy, and not at all confined to the bad eggs. A third gunboat, the Banshee, had been destroyed with all hands during the final attack from the outside. In addition, a dozen men had been killed during the fighting in the galleries. Everybody was shocked, except Clem Zareff, who had been in battles before. He was surprised that the casualties had been so light. At first glance, the spaceport looked like a handsome prize of victory. The docks and workshops were all in good condition. At worst, they only needed cleaning up. There was a collapsium plant with its own mass-energy converter. There were foundries and machine shops and forging shops and a rolling mill, almost completely robotic. At first, Khan thought it might be possible to build a hyperdrive ship here, without having to go to Koshai at all. Closer examination disabused him of this hope. There was nothing of which the framework of a ship could be built, and no way of producing heavy structural steel. The rolling mill was good enough to turn out eighth-inch sheet material, which, when plated with a few micromicrons of collapsium, would be as good as a hundred feet of lead against space radiations, but that was the ship's skin. A ship needed a skeleton, too. The only thing to do was go on with the Harriet Barn. It was sunset before he finished his tour of inspection and let his jeep down in a vehicle hall off the lower gallery outside what had originally been the Spaceport Officers' Club. It was crowded, and a victory celebration seemed to be getting underway. He saw his father, with Yves Jacquemont, Sylvie, Tom Brangwen, and Captain Nichols. Nichols had gotten clean clothes from the pirate's store of loot, and had bathed and shaved. So had Jacquemont, though he had contented himself with trimming his beard. It took him a second or so to recognize the young lady in feminine garb 
as his erstwhile battle comrade, Sylvie. Well, our pay goes on from the day we were captured, Nichols was saying. My instructions are to resume command of the ship. Tomorrow they're sending a party out to go over her. Khan stopped short. What's this about the ship? Captain Nichols was in screen contact with his company's office in Storsenda, Rodney Maxwell said. They're continuing him in command of her. But, but we took that ship. We lost three gunboats and about twenty-five men. She still belongs to transcontinent and overseas, his father said, and that's been the law on stolen property as long as there's been any law. Of course he should have known that. Did know it, just didn't think it. We broke an awful lot of eggs for no omelet, fought a battle for nothing. Well, of course I'm prejudiced, Sylvie said, but I don't think getting us out of the hands of that bloodthirsty maniac and his cutthroats was nothing. Wiping out the Paralis gang wasn't nothing, Con, Tom Brangwen said. You got no idea at all how bad things were the last couple of years. I know, I'm sorry. He was ashamed of himself. But I needed a ship, and now we have no ship at all. A ship means something to you? Eve's Jackmont asked. Yes, he told him why. If we could get to Koshai, we could build a hypership of our own, and get our brandy and things to markets where we could get a decent price for them. I know. I was in and out of Storsenda on these owner-captain tramps for a couple of years before I decided to retire and settle here, Jackmont said. The profit on a cargo of Poitam brandy on Terra or Baldur is over a thousand percent. Well, don't give up too soon, Nichols advised. You can't keep the Harriet Barn, of course, but you're entitled to prize money on her, and that ought to buy you something you could build a spaceship out of. That's right, Jackmont said. Everything else besides the frame can be made here. Look, these pirates burned me out. Except for the money I have in the bank, I lost everything—home, business, and all. As soon as I can find a place for Sylvie to stay, I'll come back and go to work for your company, building a spaceship. And a lot of the men who are working here are farm tramps and drifters. One job's as good as another as long as they get paid for it. And I know a few good men in Storacenda, engineers, who'd be glad for a job, too." "'You think it would be all right with Mother and Flora if Sylvie stayed with us?' Con asked. "'Of course it would. They'd be glad to have her.' Rodney Maxwell turned to Eve's Jackmont. "'Let's consider that fixed up. Now, suppose you and I go into Storacenda and—' The transcontinent and overseas people arrived at Barathrum spaceport the next morning. A rear-rank vice-president, a front-rank legal eagle, and three engineers.' They were horrified at what they saw. The Harriet Barn had been gutted. Bulkheads and decks had been ripped out and relocated incomprehensibly. The bridge and the control room under it were gone. She had been stripped to her framework, and the whole underside was sheathed in shimmering collapsium. "'Great goo!' the vice-president almost howled. "'That isn't our ship!' "'That's the Harriet Barn,' her captain said. She looks a little ragged now, but— You helped these pirates do this to her? 
If I hadn't, they'd have cut out my throat and gotten somebody else to help them. My throat's more valuable to me than the ship is to you. I can't get anybody to build me a new one." "'Well, understand,' one of the engineers said, they were converting her into an interplanetary ship. It wouldn't cost much to finish the job." "'We need an interplanetary ship like we need a hole in the head,' the vice-president turned to Rodney Maxwell. "'Just how much prize money do you think you're entitled to for this wreck?' "'I wouldn't know. That's up to Sturber, Flynn, and Chen Wong. Up to the court, if we can't settle it any other way.' "'You mean you'd litigate about this?' the lawyer demanded, and began to laugh. "'If we have to. Look, if you people don't want her, sign her over to Litchfield Exploration and Salvage. But if you do want her, you'll have to pay for her.' "'We'll give you twenty thousand sols,' the lawyer said. "'We don't want to be tight-fisted. After all, you fought a gang of pirates and lost some men and a couple of boats. We have some moral obligation to you.' but you'll have to realize that this ship, in her present state, is practically valueless. A collapsium on her is worth twice that, and the engines are worth even more, Jackmont said. I worked on them." The discussion ended there. By mid-afternoon, Luther Chen Wang, the junior partner of the law firm, arrived from Storacenda with a couple of engineers of his own. Reporters began arriving. Both sides were anxious to keep them away from the ship. Khan took care of them, assisted by Sylvie, who had rummaged an even more attractive costume out of what she called the loot-locker. The reporters all used up a lot of film footage on her. And the Fozzie's office gang arrived from Force Command, bitterly critical of the value of the spaceport against its cost in lives and equipment. Brangwen and Zeref returned to Force Command with them. A planetary air patrol ship arrived and removed the captured pirates. The liberated prisoners were airlifted to Litchfield. The third day after the battle, Khan and his father and Sylvie and her father flew to Litchfield. To Khan's surprise, Flora greeted him cordially, and Wade Lucas rather stiffly congratulated him. Maybe it was as Tom Brangwood had said. He hadn't been on Poitem in the last four or five years, and didn't know how bad things had gotten. His mother seemed to think he had won the Battle of Barathrum single-handed. He was even more surprised and gratified that Flora made friends with Sylvie immediately. His mother, however, regarded the engineer's daughter with badly concealed hostility, and seemed to doubt that Sylvie was the kind of girl she wanted her son getting involved with. Outwardly, of course, she was quite gracious. Rodney Maxwell and Eves Jackmont flew to Storsenda the next morning. Both were more optimistic about finding a ship than Khan thought the circumstances warranted. Khan stayed at home for the next few days, luxuriating in idleness. He and Sylvie tore down his mother's household robots and built sound sensors into them, keying them to respond to their names and to a few simple commands, and included worded voice responses in a thick Sheshan accent. All the smart people on Terra, he explained, had Sheshan humanoid servants. His mother was delighted. Robots that would answer when she spoke to them were a lot more companionable. She didn't seem to think, however, that Sylvie's mechanical skills were ladylike accomplishments. Nice girls, Litchfield model, 
weren't quite so handy with a spot-welder. That was what Kahn liked about Sylvie. She was like the girls he'd known at the university. They were strolling after dinner down the mall. The air was sharp and warned that autumn had definitely arrived. The many brilliant stars, almost as bright as the moon of Terra, were coming out in the dusk. Con, this thing about Merlin, she began, do you really believe in it? Ever since Dad and I came to Poitem, I've been hearing about it, but it's just a story, isn't it? He was tempted to tell her the truth, and sternly put the temptation behind him. Of course there's a Merlin, Sylvie, and it's going to do wonderful things when we find it. He looked down the starlit mall ahead of him. Somebody, maybe Lester Dawes and Morgan Gatworth and Lorenzo Menardis, had gotten things finished and cleaned up. The pavement was smooth and unbroken. The litter had vanished. It's done wonderful things already, just because people started looking for it, he said. Some of these days they're going to realize that they had Merlin all along and didn't know it. There was a faint humming somewhere ahead, and he was wondering what it was. Then they came to the long escalators and saw that they were running. Why, look, they've got them fixed. They're running. Sylvie grinned at him and squeezed his arm. I get you, chum, she said. Of course there's a Merlin. Maybe he didn't have to tell her the truth. When they returned to the house, his mother greeted him. Con, your father's been trying to get you ever since you went out. Call him right away. Ritzgartner Hotel, in Storsenda. It's something about a ship. It took a little time to get his father on screen. He was excited and happy. Hi, Con. We have one, he said. What kind of a ship? You know her, the Harriet Barn. That he hadn't expected. Something off Mothball Row that would have to be flown to Barathrum and torn down and completely rebuilt, but not the one that was there already, partly finished. How the dickens did you wangle that? Oh, it was Eve's idea to start with. He knew about her. The T&O's been losing money on her for years. He said if they had to pay prize money on her, and then either restore her to original condition or finish the job and build a spaceship they didn't want, it would almost bankrupt the company. They got up as high as 50,000 sols for prize money, and we just laughed at them. So we made a proposition of our own. We proposed organizing a new company, subsidiary to both L.E.N.S. and T.N.O., to engage in interplanetary shipping. Both companies to assign their equity in the Harriet Barn to the new company, the work of completing her to be done at our spaceport, and the labor cost to be shared. This would give us our spaceship and get T.N.O. off the hook all around. Everybody was for it, except the president of T.N.O. Know anything about him? Khan shook his head. His father continued. Name's Jethro Sastraman. He could play Scrooge in Christmas Carol without any makeup at all. He hasn't had a new idea since he got out of college, and that was while the war was still going on. Preposterous, utterly visionary, and impractical, 
his father mimicked. Fortunately, a majority of the big stockholders didn't agree. They finally bullied him into agreeing. We're calling the new company Alpha Interplanetary. We have an application for charter in, and that'll go through almost automatically. Who's going to be president of this new company? You know him. Character named Rodney Maxwell. Eves is going to be vice president in charge of operations. He's flying to Barathrum tomorrow or the next day with a gang of technicians we're recruiting. T&O are giving us Clyde Nichols and Mac Vibart and a lot of men from their shipyard. I'm staying here in Storsenda. We're opening an office here. By this time next week, we're all going to wish we'd been born quintuplets. And Con Maxwell, I suppose, will be an influential non-office-holding stockholder. That's right, just like in L.E. and S. Chapter 12 He found Jerry Rivas and Anse Dawes and a score of workmen making a survey and inventory of the spaceport. Captain Nichols and four of the original crew of the Harriet Barn, who had shared his captivity among the pirates, had stayed to take care of the ship. And Fred Karski, with one gun-cutter and a couple of light airboats, was keeping up a routine guard. All of them had heard about the formation of Alpha Interplanetary when Khan arrived. The next day, Eves Jackmont arrived, accompanied by Mac Vibart, a gang from the T&O shipyard, and a dozen engineers and construction men whom he had recruited around Storsenda. More workers arrived in the next few days, including a number who had already worked on the ship as slaves of the Perales gang. It didn't take Khan long to appreciate the problems involved in the conversion. Built to operate only inside planetary atmosphere and gravitation, the Harriet Barn was long and narrow, like an old ocean ship. More than anything else, she had originally resembled a huge submarine. Spaceships, either interplanetary or interstellar, were always spherical, with a pseudo-gravity system at the center. This, of course, the Harriet Barn lacked. Well, are we going to make the whole trip in freefall, he wanted to know? No, we'll use our acceleration for pseudograv halfway, and deceleration the other half, Jack Mott told him. We'll be in freefall for about ten or fifteen hours. What we're going to have to do will be to lift off from Poitem in the horizontal position the ship was designed for, then make a ninety-degree turn after we're off-planet. With our lift and our drive working together, just like one of the old rocket ships before the Abbott drive was developed. That meant, of course, that the after-bulkheads would become decks, and explained a lot of the oddities he had noticed about the conversion job. It meant that everything would have to be mounted on gimbals, everything stowed so as to be secure in either position, and nothing placed where it would be out of reach in either. Jackmont and Nichols took charge of the work on the ship herself. Chief Engineer Vibart, with a gang of half-taught, self-taught, and untaught helpers, went back to working the engines over, tearing out all the safety devices that were intended to keep the ship inside planetary atmosphere, and arranging the lift engines so that they could be swung into line with the drive engines. There was a lot of cybernetic and robotic equipment, and astrogational equipment that had to be made from scratch. Khan picked a couple of helpers and went to work on that. 
From time to time he was able to snatch a few minutes to read teleprint newspapers or listen to audiovisual newscasts from Storacenda. He was always disappointed. There was much excitement about the new interplanetary company, but the emphasis was all wrong. People weren't interested in getting hyperships built, or opening the mines or factories on Koshai, or talking about all the things now in short supply that could be produced there. They were talking about Merlin. And they were all positive now that something found at Forced Command Duplicate had convinced Litchfield Exploration and Salvage that the giant computer was somewhere off-planet. Rodney Maxwell flew in from Storsenda. He was accompanied by Wade Lucas, who shook hands cordially with Khan. "'Can you spare us Jerry Revis for a while?' Rodney Maxwell asked. "'Well, ask Eves Jackmont. He's vice-president in charge of operations. As an influential non-office-holding stockholder, I'd think so. He's only running around helping out here and there.' We want him to take charge of opening those hospitals you were telling us about. Wade and I are forming a new company, Mainland Medical Materials Limited, going to act as broker for L.E.N.S. in getting rid of medical stores. Nobody in the company knows where to sell that stuff or what we ought to get for it. Wade Lucas began to talk about how desperately some types of drug and some varieties of diagnostic equipment were needed. Khan headed on the tip of his tongue to ask Lucas whether he thought that was a racket, too. Lucas must have read his mind. "'I really didn't understand how much good this would do,' he said. "'I wouldn't have spoken so forcefully against it if I had. I thought it was nothing but this Merlin thing.' "'Ugh! Don't talk to me about Merlin,' Khan interrupted. "'I have to talk to Kurt Fozzy and that crowd about Merlin till I'm sick of the whole subject.' His father shot him a warning glance. Lucas was looking at him in surprise. He hastened to change the subject. "'I see Len made you a suit of that material,' he said to his father, "'and I see you are not bulging the coat out behind with a hip holster.' "'Oh, I stopped carrying a gun. I'm a city man now. Nobody carries one at Storacenda. Wouldn't even be necessary in Litchfield before long.' Our new marshal had a regular reign of terror in Tramptown for a few days, and you wouldn't know the place. Wade here is acting mayor now. They went back to talking about the new company. You're going to have so many companies you won't be able to keep track of them before long, Con said. Well, I'm doing something about that. A holding company. Tri-System Investments Limited. You're a non-office holding stockholder in that, too. Merlin was now a political issue. A bill had been introduced in Parliament to amend the Abandoned Property Act of 867 and nationalize Merlin, when and if discovered, and regardless by whom. The support seemed to come from an extremist minority. Everybody else, including the administration, was opposed to it. There was considerable acrimony, however, on the propositions. One, that Merlin was too important to the prosperity of Poitem to become a private monopoly, and, two, that Merlin was too important, etc., to become a political football and patronage plum. It was discovered, after they were half-assembled, that the controls for the Harriet Barn would only work while she was in a horizontal position. The whole thing had to be torn out and rebuilt. 
There was also trouble with the air and water recycling system. The city of Nefertiti came in from Aton for Odin. Rodney Maxwell was almost frantic because they hadn't gotten together a cargo of medical stores from the first hospital to be opened. There's all sorts of stuff, he was fuming by screen, stuff that's in short supply anywhere and that we could get good prices for off-planet, get Federation Sols for it, too. The city of Asgard will be along in six months, Khan said. You can have a real cargo assembled by then. You can make arrangements in advance to dispose of it on Terra or Baldur or Marduk. There are a couple of other companies interested in interplanetary ships now, his father added. One of them has gotten four old freighters off Mothball Row, and they're tearing them down and cannibalizing them into one spaceship. That work's being done here at Storsenda Spaceport. And another company has gotten title to a couple of old office buildings and has a gang at work dismantling them for the structural steel. I think they're going to build a real spaceship. That wasn't anything to worry about either. The Harriet Barn was better than half finished. There was a collapsium plant at Storacenda Spaceport, but Eves Jockmont said it was only half the size of the one at Barathrum. It would be three months before it could produce armor for one, let alone both, ships. The crackpots were getting into the act now, too. A spirit medium on the continent of Acare, to the north, had produced a communication purporting to originate from a deceased Third Force staff officer now in the spirit world. There was considerable detail, all ludicrous to Khan's professional ear. And a fanatic in one of the small towns on the west coast was quoting the Bible, the Koran, and the Bhagavad Gita to prove that if Merlin were ever found, divine vengeance in spectacular form would fall not only on Poitem but on the entire galaxy. The spaceship that was building at Storacenda got into the news. On screen, it appeared that the work was progressing rapidly. So was the work of demolishing a block of empty buildings to get girders for the second ship, on which work had not yet been started. The one under construction seemed to be of cruciform design, like an old-fashioned pre-contragravity winged airplane. The design puzzled everybody at Barathrum. Eves Jackmont thought that perhaps there would be decks on the cross-arm which would be used when the ship was running on combined lift and drive. Well, till we get a shipyard going on Koshai and build some real spaceships, there are going to be some rare-looking objects traveling around the Alpha system. I wonder what the next one's going to look like, a flying skyscraper, Khan said. What I wonder, Eves Jackmont replied, is where all the old interplanetary ships got to. There must have been hundreds of them running back and forth from here to Janico and Koshai and Jurgen and Horvendil during the war. They must have gone somewhere. Couldn't they all have been fitted with Dillingham hyperdrive engines and used in the evacuation? Possible, but the average interplanetary ship isn't very big, 500 to 750 feet in diameter. One of those things couldn't carry more than a couple of hundred people, after you put in all the supplies and the hydroponic tanks and the carniculture vats and so on for a four- to six-month voyage. I can't see the economy of altering anything that small for interstellar work. Why, the smallest of these tramp freighters that come in here will run about fifteen hundred feet. 
They didn't just disintegrate when peace broke out, that was for sure. And there certainly wasn't any of them left on Poitem. He puzzled over it briefly, then shoved it aside. He had more important things to think about. In his spare time he was studying, along with his other work, everything he could find on Koshai, with an intensity he had not given to anything since cramming for examinations at the university. There was a lot of it. The fourth planet of Alpha Gartner was older than Poitem. Geologists claimed that it was the oldest thing, the sun accepted, in the system, and astrophysicists were far from convinced that it hadn't been captured from either Beta or Gamma when the three stars had been much closer together. It had certainly been formed at a much higher temperature than Janico or Poitem or Jurgen or Horvendil. For better than a million years it had been molten hot, and it had lost most of its lighter elements in gaseous form along with its primary atmosphere, leaving little to form a light rock crust. All that had remained had been a core of almost pure iron, and a mantle that was mostly high-grade iron ore. The same process had gone on, as it cooled, as on any terra-sized planet. After the surface had started to congeal, gases, mostly carbon dioxide and water vapor, had come up to form a secondary atmosphere, the water vapor forming a cloud envelope, condensing and sending down rain that returned immediately as steam. Solar radiations and electric discharges broke some of that into oxygen and hydrogen. Most of the hydrogen escaped into space. Finally, the surface cooled further and the rain no longer steamed off. The whole planet started to rust. It had been rusting, slowly, for the billion or so years that had followed, and almost all the free oxygen had become locked in iron oxide. The air was almost pure carbon dioxide. It would have been different if life had ever appeared on Koshai, but apparently the right amino acids never assembled. Some attempts had been made to introduce vegetation after the colonization of Poitem, but they had all failed. Men went to Koshai. They worked out of doors in oxygen helmets, and lived in airtight domes and generated their own oxygen. There had been mines and smelters and blast furnaces and steel mills. And there had been shipyards, where hyperships up to three thousand feet had been built. They had all been abandoned when the war ended. They were waiting there on an empty, lifeless planet. Some of them had been built by the Third Fleet Army Force during the war. Most of them dated back almost a century before that, to the original industrial boom. All of them could be claimed under the Abandoned Property Act of 867, since all had been taken over by the Federation, and the original owners, or their heirs, compensated. And there was the matter of selecting a crew. As an influential non-office-holding shareholder in all the companies involved, Con Maxwell, of course, would represent them. He would also serve as astrogator. Clyde Nichols would command the ship in atmosphere and act as first mate in space. Mac Vibart would be chief engineer at all times. Eves Jackmont would be the first officer under Nichols and captain outside atmosphere. They had three real space crewmen, named Rodell, Yutsko, and O'Keefe, who had been in Storacenda jail as a result of a riotous binge when their ship had lifted out six months before. 
The rest of the company, Jerry Rivas, Ernst Dawes, Charlie Gatworth, Mohammed Matsui, and four other engineers, Ludvigson, Gomez, Garanja, and Retief, rated as ordinary spacemen for the trip, and would do most of the exploration work after landing. They got the controls put up. They would work in either position. The engines were lifted in and placed. Khan finished the robopilot and the astrogational computers and saw them installed. The air and water recycling system went in. The collapsium armor went on. In the news screen, they saw the spaceship in Storacenda still far from half-finished, with swarms of heavy-duty lifters and contragravity machiners around it, and a set of landing stands on which the second ship was to be built in the process of construction. A tramp hyperspace freighter landed at Storacenda, the Andromeda, five months from Terra, with a cargo of general merchandise. Rodney Maxwell and Wade Lucas had assembled a cargo of medicines and hospital equipment which they thought could be sold profitably. They began dickering with the owner-captain of the hypership. A farm tramp down in the tobacco country in the south, evidently ignorant that the former commander of the Third Force was still alive, had proclaimed himself to be the reincarnation of Fox Travis, and was forbidding everybody, on pain of court-martial and firing squad, from meddling with Merlin and an evangelist in the West was declaring that Merlin was really Satan in mechanical shape. The Harriet Barn was finished. The first test, lifting her to three hundred miles, turning her bow up, and taking her another thousand miles, had been a success. They brought her back and set her down in the middle of the crater, and began getting the supplies aboard. Kurt Fawzi, Clem Zareff, Judge Ledoux, Franz Veltrin, and the others flew in from Force Command. Sylvie Jackmont came from Litchfield, and so did Wade Lucas, Morgan Gatworth, Lester Dawes, Lorenzo Menardis, and a number of others. Neither Khan's mother nor sister came. "'I don't know what's the matter with those two, Sylvie told him. "'They always seem to be scrapping with each other now and the only thing they can agree on is that you and your father ought to stop whatever you're doing, right away. Your mother can't adjust to your father being a big store-ascendant businessman, and she says he'll lose every cent of all he has, and both of you will probably go to jail. And then she's afraid you will find Merlin, and Flora's sure you and your father are swindling everybody on the planet. Sylvie, I had no idea things could be like that, he told her contritely. I wish I hadn't suggested that you stay there now. Oh, it isn't so bad, so far. Your mother and I get along all right when Flora isn't there, and Flora and I get along when your mother isn't around. Mealtimes aren't much fun, though. His father came out from Storacenda, looked the ship over, and seemed relieved. I'm glad you're ready to get off, he said. You know, this hyperspace freighter, the Andromeda? Some private group in Storacenda has chartered her. She's loading supplies now. I have a private detective agency, Barton Massara, trying to find out where she's going. I think you better get this ship off right away. We have everything aboard, all the supplies and everything, Jackmont told him. We can lift off tonight. End of chapters 11 and 12